0: I am a little worried though at this point that there's a state of fear that is occurring, particularly related to c t e to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where you are hearing stories now of individuals who have one concussion as a teenager and their parents are worried to death now that their son or daughter are going to die of c t e that they're going to be diagnosed with it and have all these issues um so I think there's responsibility that needs to be taken by everyone involved within a sports setting including the media who cover this uh, area and the research associated with it to make sure that they're providing the information in a factual manner hey this is Dr. Zachary Kerr from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast
1: welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast I'm your host Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athletes story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Thanks for tuning in to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week, I'm excited to bring you Dr. Zachary Kerr, who's the Research Director for the Center for the Study of Retired Athletes uh, at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's also an Assistant Professor at UNC in the Department of Exercise and sports science. Uh, He has previously served as the director of the NCAA Injury Surveillance Program and has published more than 75 research articles related to injury surveillance. So I'm really excited to have you on uh, today, Zach. And in layman's terms, can you start off by explaining what epidemiology is?
0: Yeah, first off, thanks for having me. Really great to be here. Um, epidemiology, I kind of jokingly tell my friends, it's the study of what hurts or kills you. Um, it is based off of three Latin words: um, ology, study of; demi, people; epi, again. So when you put that all together, it's the study of which or what is against humans. Um, so pretty much. In terms of epidemiology, we're looking at what hurts us and what we can do to prevent it from hurting us. And when I think about epidemiology, my outcome of interest is injury. So injuries as related to sports.
1: Okay. And is sports epidemiology like a relatively new field? Like how long have has people been researching um, injuries and what hurts people and what kills people in different areas of or different facets of life?
0: Yeah, I, I feel like... There's all these different areas of interest in epidemiology. You got cardiovascular, epi, pharmacology, epidemiology. Um, You have uh, injury epidemiology alongside that, infectious disease, epidemiology, particularly a lot of interest in HIV and AIDS. Um, I feel like there's not as much interest in injury epidemiology as there are in those other fields. And Then when you think about injury epidemiology, there's motor vehicles and firearm safety and uh, domestic violence. And then there's sports injury, which is just as well as sort of a smaller segment. So we're kind of dealing with two hurdles to, to face. Um, but I think there's a growing interest. Um, but you know, in reality, when you're talking about sports injury epidemiologists, um, I can probably count how many there are that I know personally on one
1: hand. Okay, and I mean, obviously, on this podcast, we're very interested in um, injury epidemiology and sports, so we're we're excited to have you on for sure. Great. Um, okay. So. Where did your interest in sports epidemiology, or maybe epidemiology in general, begin? (laughs) Um, So,
0: once upon a time, I was actually doing HIV prevention research. And I was doing this in central Ohio about now 10 to 12 years ago. Um, And I think for me, I was getting a little burnt out in the world of HIV and AIDS. Um, you know, full disclosure, I, a gay man, my ex at the time uh, was HIV positive. I was HIV negative. Didn't learn much, so I was lear- I was dealing with a lot of his health issues as well as trying to play a role in HIV prevention. And I think it just hit too close to home, and I wanted to find something a little separate, a little distant from what I was doing. But at the same time, I also wanted to do something that everyone had an opinion on. I think there were times when I was working in Central Ohio on HIV and AIDS that no one wanted to talk about it. It wasn't their issue. It was a gay man's issue. It wasn't for everyone. And I happened upon this world of sports injury epidemiology thanks to a woman uh, who was teaching the intro to epidemiology course I was doing when I was pursuing my master's in public health. Her name is Dawn Comstock, and she's one of the world's leading sports injury epidemiologists. And he caught me uh, into this interest of sports. And I was at the Ohio State University. Everyone who goes to Ohio State is obsessed with college football. That's what happened to me. I soon became a very uh, ardent uh, Buckeye fan. And I think that's what got me into the world of sports injury epidemiology, was that growing interest in sports, being at Ohio State, and at the same time, realizing that everyone wanted to talk about sports injuries. Everyone had an experience as uh, a former athlete, a current athlete, a parent of a youth athlete, or someone who's just a fan, and I think that really uh, got me interested and hooked on it.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, I could see how you get caught up in the uh, all the sports that are going on at Ohio State. I just went to a game this past year at Ohio State, and it was definitely a lot different than it was when I went to Rutgers. So, uh,
0: yeah, they're, so, they're kind of insane there.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. Um, I know you had some background in journalism and communications as well. Uh, did that have any influence on you know what what got you to where you are today?
0: Yeah, I think um, I think what helped me with the journalism and communication background uh, really shaped up right when I started getting an interest in concussion. When I started doing my doctoral work in epidemiology at North Carolina. Um, I really started to get an interesting concussion having folks like Steve Marshall and Kevin Guskowitz there. And the big thing that was happening eight to 10 years ago was this discussion of this increase in in concussions that was occurring and whether that increase was related to um, actual incidents or if it was just more reporting or more remembering of it. And I think that's really where I found this first tie into communication because there's a lot of things as related to how the media was talking about concussion that was then reflected upon uh, by the, the individuals who are watching it, many of those who were former or current athletes. So, I think that helps and has helped me think critically about not only concussions and any sports injury, but also how we think about those injuries based upon what the media is providing us.
1: Okay. So what, what is your opinion on that exact issue today? Like, I know obviously concussions are in the news constantly. And, you know, do you think that we really do have more concussions, you know, today or is it the same as it was 20 years ago? We just are just more aware and more people report. And, and is that the, the real problem? Yeah,
0: I think the media can often be a double-edged sword. I think the media has done a lot to push this issue into the forefront. And this is one that needed to be pushed in the forefront. We... You can go to past uh, publications from the early 1900s and find individuals talking about the need to focus on concussions, but a lot of the weight focused on it really didn't happen until uh, Alan Schwartz first talked about some of the, the first seminal studies from uh kevin guskowitz looking at this association between concussions and long-term adverse outcomes in uh the uh, former retired nfl athletes so i think the media was there to really announce this need to look at it and really push everyone else to start thinking about this critically I think also the media is a source of information of education for individuals to start thinking about these concussions and why they're serious. I am a little worried though at this point that there's a state of fear that is occurring particularly related to CTE to chronic traumatic encephalopathy where you are hearing stories now of individuals who have one concussion as a teenager and their parents are worried to death now that their son or daughter are going to die of CTE that they're going to be diagnosed with it and have all these issues Um, so I think there's responsibility that needs to be taken by everyone involved within a sports setting, including the media who cover this uh, area and the research associated with it to make sure that they're providing the information in a factual manner.
1: Yeah. And I love that because the last thing I want for this podcast is for me to share stories of injured athletes and some of the struggles that they've had to overcome. And then I don't want that to deter, you know, athletes from playing the sport that they love. Cause if I can go back and play football again, like I would hundred percent would, I just wouldn't play when I had a concussion. That's pretty much the only thing I would do differently. Um, so I guess what are your thoughts on States like Illinois and, uh, Maryland and California proposing to ban tackle football before kids reach uh, high school age?
0: Yeah. From a, from a scientific standpoint, uh, there are these models or frameworks that kind of think about injury prevention, and there's this great one called the uh, Haddon uh, approach of countermeasures, and they talk about all the different levels at which you can intervene to prevent an injury from happening. So the classic example they use is automobile accidents or firearms, where the most severe thing you can do is just eliminate the issue. So. If you don't want to have car accidents, you just don't have cars existing. If you don't want to have firearm injuries, you get rid of all the firearms. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have tertiary prevention. So this is management of issues as they approach. So for car safety or firearm safety would be immediate management of these injuries when they do occur from these causes. So when I think about um, these proposals to to ban tackle football, there's a part of me that agrees that this is important. You know, we we have a good amount of information that's saying that there's something there. But we don't know yet what it is that directly that's causing these adverse outcomes. But I just worry that we may be jumping the gun a little bit too soon and we may be going to something too extreme of a, of a prevention measure without thinking about. What other options are out there? I just I just worry about the actual implementation. They're they're going to have bans and tackle football, but I'm not sure how well that's going to be implemented. And that's why I've been a little bit more comfortable advocating for a little bit more things that we can do to limit contact, but not actually get rid of it altogether. The other concern I always have is that, you know, what's going to happen once contact's in play? Are those students, athletes going to be prepared for the tackling they're going to be uh, told to do at that age or not,
1: right? And d- would you say at this point in time, do the injury surveillance numbers back these proposals? Like, yeah
0: i I would say there's evidence, but if I would say there's proof or just bucket loads of evidence, I'm not so confident. I would say that yet. Um, you know, I. I think the media sometimes likes to put people in certain territories as, you know, people who are pro football, people who are anti football. And, um, I guess throughout my career, I've always been placed in that pro football, um, Group because I did my education at UNC. I worked under Doctor Kevin Guskowitz. I worked for years for for with the NCAA. I had funding provided by USA Football, who's heavily funded by the NFL. Um, and I think for me, there is a lot of evidence or suggestions that there is an association. Um, but it's not that strong. And a lot of the work being done by Boston University, which I think is excellent research to create this in, this, this discussion, um, it's still in very much the preliminary stages. When you talk about the JAMA publication that came out um, last summer that found 99% of NFL players had evidence of CTE in their brain autopsies, People are forgetting this is a case series. This is not meant to prove or even talk about suggestions of an association. All it can do is generate a hypothesis that will thus allow us to build a bigger study with better methods, with better study design to be able to test that association existing or not. So I think sometimes we forget about that. I think there are many steps right now in place to help provide us with the push for more funding for more evidence, but I don't think we have the answers just yet.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good information out there for, you know, media consumers. Uh, so I know injury surveillance uh, can be a pretty complicated, I guess, trade. So can you kind of talk about what makes it so complicated, especially in sports when it comes to, you know, roster size and practice versus games?
0: Yeah. There's just, I think, you can look at this to so many levels i mean the first thing is just getting the data collected um we're pretty fortunate at the professional, the college level, and at a good number of high schools to have athletic trainers there. And I'm very much one who advocates the use of athletic trainers as data collectors because they are what I consider to be a gold standard. They have the education, the experience to properly diagnose and detect these injuries happening, be it a concussion all the way down to a simple contusion um, or anything in between. I think at the same time, they also have to do clinical. uh, As far as their daily clinical practice, they have to document injuries occurring. So it makes sense to have them providing data for injury surveillance. I think it gets a lot more difficult when you start going to the professional levels and when you start going down to the youth levels. And I'll start with the professional level. I think there's so much data there, but for whatever reason, it's really hard for external researchers to get access to that data. Now, granted, uh, I believe the NHL and the Major League Baseball surveillance systems, they do have applications for um, injury surveillance and for external researchers to use some of that data. I think some of the other data sets, it's a lot harder to get your hands on data unless there's someone working there. And that uh, data is pretty much used for internal use only. Um, I would really push for anyone who does work with those organizations and who can provide an outlet for external researchers to use that data to provide it because it's professional level data, but I think there's so much information there that could help all those levels underneath professional sports that start at the youth going to high school or to the college level. The other thing, so I talked about the the, the limits of the pro uh, sports um, data. But the youth level data is a different monster because you have all these different uh, youth sports leagues and they don't have athletic trainers. Um, a lot of times they require funding from research to put athletic trainers in there who can not only provide care, but then also document the data. So when you think about these U.S. football studies that I was funded to do, a lot of that money was just going to hire the athletic trainers to get out there and be able to provide care, and then get the data for us to run the analyses. That's the the truth of the matter. That a lot of that money went just to fund the athletic trainers, and I think that's a a thing that I think I failed to do as a researcher to really advertise to show that, you know, this this money was not used for any purposes other than just getting individuals out there for the most part to provide care. Um, But I think it it gets really hard because then you need funding. Um, And then if you don't have that funding, then who's going to be there to provide the data? So I'm hoping in the next few years, the future of injury surveillance is going to think about more novel ways to be able to provide other access to the data through other individuals who are part of those additional stakeholder communities.
1: And I think that goes back to what you were saying with uh, professional sports. Like, they obviously have the money to fund projects like that, but they seem to be keeping that information to themselves when they could have a trickle down effect in a positive way uh, in terms of injury prevention at, at other levels of the sport. So, you know, why do you think that they hold on to the information? Is it because of media backlash or. Yeah, I'm not sure.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm sure someone there has a really good and valid reason that perhaps you and I haven't thought about. But um, it'd be just a lot easier if they would just be transparent and tell us what's going on. Um, I, I think they're, you know, I I don't know. I'm only one epidemiologist, but. I know that a lot of the organizations do work very closely with researchers, and hopefully, one of these days, you can get one of them on your podcast to kind of touch base a little bit more about that. I think for me, um, you know, I like to think of injury surveillance as something that should be publicly accessible and provide information for any stakeholder group. Um, when you look at the work that Don Comstock does, Every year she puts out a study report that talks about what sort of injuries are occurring within high school sports. So any athletic director, any athletic trainer, any coach can go online to her website and find that information and then compare it to their own school and say, Okay, we're doing a better job than the national average as far as the number of concussions we're getting. Are oh wow, we're really doing something wrong here because our numbers are higher than the national average. Perhaps we need more funding, perhaps we need to start thinking about how we're doing the coaching, how we're doing the training for the athletes.
1: Okay. And so in your research, I obviously you research more than just concussion. So like what defines an injury? In epidemiology uh, research and sports? Yeah, the, the usual
0: um, generic injury definition is comprised of three components. The first one being it was medically documented by an athletic trainer, a team physician, someone on the medical staff. The second component is that it happens during a school sanctioned practice or competition. So Any non-sport related concussion, any non-sport related injury is not being captured by the surveillance, or at least reported. The third aspect and something that has been sort of uh, being let go of in recent years by certain injury surveillance programs revolves around the time loss associated with it. So um, when you think about injury surveillance as it was developed, um, the original plan was to have all injuries documented um, no matter how severe or minor they were and i think from what i was told i wasn't born when this is when this was going on that a lot of athletic trainers bulked because it required double data entry so data entry once for their own clinical records and then data entry again for the purposes of research and surveillance and i think it became an issue of time and effort and how much that was going to interfere with their interfere with their first directive which is to provide care and management for the athletes so a compromise was made and that compromise was only to focus on those injuries that resulted in at least 24 hours of participation restriction time so any less severe injury any minor injury wasn't documented in the purpose of surveillance uh, but it was uh, registered as part of the daily clinical practice and this uh, when you think about recent findings that show that 50 to 80 percent of all injuries are these less than 24 hour time loss type of injuries um, it really cut the workload for the data collectors uh, uh, in half in some cases. That, as noted, is not an issue now with some of the surveillance that latches onto these electronic medical records that are being used by the athletic trainers. So, uh, The NCAA Injury Surveillance Program, Daedalus' High School Nation uh, Injury Surveillance, Uh, at the high school level, you can get these non-time loss injuries as well. Uh, But When you look at High School Rio and some of the other uh, injury surveillance that's out there historically longer than the others, um, they do rely upon that time loss over 24 hours hours or at least 24 hours of time lost to be registered in the surveillance.
1: Okay. Thanks. Thanks for uh, explaining that. So I have a question about going back to concussions and injury surveillance and lost time, because with most of the injuries that would keep you out for at least 24 hours, you'd probably be limping or you'd have like some visual, you know, indication that of an injury, but with concussions, as we know, that's not always the case. So how is concussions in particular um, a complicated injury to um, kind of keep tabs on? Yeah, I mean, you know, Kevin
0: Guskowitz always says concussions are like snowflakes, no two are alike in terms of how they're caused or what the outcomes are. Um, it's also very much, in many cases, a hidden injury. Um, sometimes people can be asymptomatic or less symptomatic than others individuals can react differently i know one of the uh former doc students uh who was also a rowing athlete at the university of north carolina chapel hill her name is liz teal but i remember her telling me a story of two of her teammates where both of them were rowing with her, and oars went up as another boat was passing by, and two of them got clocked in the back of the head by the oars on the other on the other team. And I remember Liz telling me that you know one of the athletes was like, "I'm good, ready to go," and the other one couldn't even stand up straight. So, same mechanism, you know, you would assume same type of concussion, uh, but two totally very different reactions. And. The ones who have that bigger reaction are the ones, unfortunately, more likely to be documented by uh, injury surveillance. The good thing now is that there is more education, more uh, continuing education uh, for team medical staff, for the athletic trainers to be able to detect those specific injuries that may not be accounted for, may not have been accounted for in the past. But we do find issues, especially with surveillance, where you will have someone who has delayed reactions or delayed symptoms. So you will see individuals who are returned to play early. um, And then the next day they come back and they say, I'm starting to get these symptoms.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that reminds me of like the concussion protocol that there's a lot of controversy over in the NFL where a lot of these guys don't get symptoms until like an hour later or sometimes a day later. And then the team gets, you know, flack for not, Going through the proper protocols when maybe in reality that's not what they presented with initially. Yeah, the,
0: uh, you know, there's this, I'll tell you an experience I had with
1: social media and media that drove
0: me nuts with one of my publications. We were looking at concussion outcomes at the youth, the high school, and the NCAA level. So we had data from all three levels, same methodologies, um, you know, similar data collection processes. And one of the findings that I touched upon very lightly in the results was that um, one, ten, one in 10 of the youth athletes who had concussions were returned in the same day. And um, part of that we speculated was because of this delayed reaction where they were checked out. They said, I'm good. It was just a knock in the head. They passed the concussion testing and they were sent back to play by the athletic trainers. But then as the weeks progressed, The kids came back and said, you know, something's not right. I have these symptoms now. And then they were later diagnosed as a concussion. So those made it to the data set because the athletic traders later diagnosed it as a concussion, but they still kept the uh, return to play as, you know, same day, same game. Um, So we tried to explain that in the discussion, but social media touched upon the fact that youth football had one in 10 of their athletes who are concussed returning to play in the same day and they just, they went after it and they started going after uh, USA football and saying, shame on you for, you know, letting these kids return to play. Even though, you know, we tried to be very transparent in the story as to how this could have occurred and what we saw occurring when we went back to our athletic trainers and asked them about it. So very much, you know, you can have the data tell the story you wanted to, and we always tried to be very transparent about why we thought or what we collected. What, wh- how did it happen? Uh, from our own point of view.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting story, but it also makes me think like people hear what they want to hear. I guess like yeah. it, it's almost like a popular thing to be, you know, anti NFL or anti USA football. You know, because of the concussion thing, it's like jumping on the bandwagon kind of thing, and people just hear what they want to hear, despite you know your explanation.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we forget a lot that the first study that found this association between concussions and adverse health outcomes um, in retired NFL players was funded by the NFL Players Association, and the NFL reacted by putting. Kevin Guskowitz on their uh, research committee.
1: Yeah. I I didn't even know that to be honest. So uh, thanks for for informing me too. No, not a problem. Uh, Yeah. Another question I have, just like an explanation that I think would be beneficial to those listening, uh, just kind of getting into the numbers that we should be focusing on when we read these uh, online articles or actually like scholarly, you know, papers. Um, is what's the difference between risk and athlete exposures? Yeah, so I, I you know, this
0: is the, the whole rate and athlete exposure thing is sort of the remnants of, of being in epidemiology where we want to be as precise with our measures as possible. So when you talk about risk in an epidemiological term, you're pretty much saying what percentage of the individuals at risk. Are going to have the event of interest within a specific time frame. So, when you translate that to concussions, you could say something like, What is the risk that a child is going to have a concussion within one season? And you can figure that out by just counting up how many individuals there are on a football team and then how many individuals were concussed. And it's that number concussed divided by the total number of individuals. So, for risk, that's great. A parent just wants to know what's the risk of my kid getting a concussion. You can say five percent. You can say ten percent. Whatever that number comes out to be. Unfortunately, epidemiologists love to be able to show off the fact that they can do long division, and um, they line this thing called a rate. And a rate works in the same way as you know we think about speed limits or how fast we drive, number of miles per hour. We're accounting for with the rate. The speed at which these injuries occur. And epidemiologists enjoy rates because they can account for not only individuals who have multiple injuries or multiple outcomes of interest, but they can also account for variations in exposure time that occur. So, one problem with the risk is that, let's say you have an individual who sustains more than one concussion. Uh, they are only accounted for once in the numerator of that calculation of the risk. At the same time, let's say we have two athletes. One played half the season, one played the full season. They're both contributing equal weight into that denominator. So what a rate does is it's able to account for that individual who had two or more concussions and accounts them twice or how many times they had a concussion. At the same time, if you have an individual who had more exposures, more games played within a season, they account for more of that denominator data. The problem is the resulting rate is usually described as five to six concussions or 5.6 concussions. I'm, not, I'm just throwing a random number out there per a thousand athlete exposures. And usually when I present those rates and I talk to the media, their first question is, so what, what does that mean in plain English? And the only way I've been successfully able to talk about this is to kind of say, imagine if you have a thousand kids playing football at once, we would expect to see in that one game, Five point six concussions occurring, and then you sort of run into this issue of, But a thousand kids playing football—that's not possible, or, or things like that. So I think rates are more precise and more accurate because they're accounting for those variations in at-risk exposure time and the variations in the number of injuries that are happening per person. But they become very non-intuitive to stakeholder groups who, and many times, just want the facts about what's the risk my kid's going to get injured.
1: Right. So, do you think that there is a difference between like the numbers that policymakers sh- should be focusing on versus parents versus coaches?
0: I think from a research standpoint, um, it's our responsibility to try to provide some of those different options. And then a parent, a policymaker is able to determine which one is more f- most feasible for what they're doing. Um, I think risks are underutilized within sports injury research. I think there's almost a thing where it's a dog wagging its tail, or uh, I'm sorry, where it's the tail wagging the dog, where there is an emphasis on rate so much that sometimes we forget that sometimes a simple measure like a risk is going to be more important okay um and actually um, what, sorry oh. um this is my dog is barking because someone's coming over so i just wanted
1: to <laughs> and you you said dog wagging his tail too so it's right yeah. on cue <laughs> i don't know if you heard him <laughs> barking in the back <laughs> yeah oh you good okay
0: um sorry there is one other thing i wanted to say in relation to that and i'll probably remember it later um
1: we were talking policymakers, parents coaches
0: as, yeah yeah so
1: um all right
0: i'm i'm gonna jump back in now so the other thing i'm worried about about policymakers and and decision makers um, i have this fear maybe this is just the paranoid side of me that you know you have all these different options you can discuss incidents of uh concussion or any sort of injury and i'm worried as researchers provide more options That individuals are going to use the numbers that best tell their story. So, there is a study I did in 2017, published in the Journal of Athletic Training, that kind of harped upon this idea of like, you know, rates are great, but we need other measures. So, why not risks? Our average number of concussions per team season, our percentage of teams within a population that have at least one concussive event. And from the same data, all this coming from the same data set, I think we found. That an average five to six concussions happen per team season in college football. um, That eighty percent of football teams have at least one concussive event throughout a season, and the risk of uh, having a concussion in football, I think, was it was somewhere between five to ten percent. So there's a paranoid part of me that worries. If I'm a youth sport organization that's struggling to get my membership and I want to be transparent about concussions, but I don't really want to scare the parents away in my community, I'm going to choose that measure of incidence that's the least scary sounding. So I always do a poll in my classes that ask, you know, out of those three or four measures, which one scares you the most? And everyone always raises their hand. When I talk about four out of five teams have a concussion that occurred, that 80.6% always scares my students the most when I tell them to think about them being a parent of a kid who wants to play football. So Obviously, that youth sport organization is not going to want to use that one. But someone who is very anti-football, very much someone who wants to get rid of tackling or wants to get rid of youth football together, they're going to be the ones who are going to be using that statistic. And Again, it's accurate as far as the data states but it's just being presented in a way that kind of preys upon the fears of those parents.
1: Okay, and that kind of leads me like perfectly into my next question, which is, can you kind of like teach us how to objectively look at these, you know, quote unquote research articles that we come across online that may be trying to paint a certain story? Like how can we kind of see through their uh, agenda?
0: yeah i think um when i think about being a consumer of research there's a couple ways you can look at this and scientifically there's this guidelines called prompt guidelines and it's an acronym for six different things um so prompt starts with p the presentation is there clear information is all the info there that you feel is necessary to be able to tell the story the R is for relevance, which is generalizability, external validity. These are words saying, with this sample we've utilized, is this going to be relatively associ- associated with what's happening in that entire population? So, for example, with the Boston University studies, there's always that discussion about relevance, about generalizability. Are the, the number of brains that were donated, does that completely represent All NFL football players historically, as well as in the current day. Um, And that's an issue they always run across with these uh, smaller case studies. And it's, again, a reason why we don't talk about case studies as proving anything or showing associations. They're just meant to generate hypotheses that can be done with larger studies that deal with some of these issues related to generalizability. The O uh, in prompt stands for objectivity, facts versus opinion. Are there vested interests? And I think uh, it's perfectly fine to be concerned about someone receiving funding from a certain sports organization. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about this with the tobacco industry, about how much can we trust research that shows uh, null effects related to smoking when the work is funded by the tobacco industry. I think it's perfectly fine to then take it to sports organizations and say, How much do I trust these findings when they're being funded by those organizations? The M in PROMPT uh, stands for method, how the data are gathered, appropriate analyses. Do you feel comfortable with how they did things? Do you feel any uh, issues that may arise from poor data collection or poor analyses that were done? Uh, the second P in prompt, this is where I think they kind of cheated a, a bit, it stands for provenance, which is a word I typically don't use much. But uh, in plain English, it just deals with credentials. So, again, very similar to objectivity, the source of information, the trustability of that person who provided that research. And then the T in okay. uh, t- uh, prompt is timeliness, which is is it current? Is it relevant? So, yeah, sorry. <laughs>
1: No, no, that's great. They have a an acronym to kind of help you through it and sift through the the garbage versus the good stuff. So um, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, not a problem. So, so I guess like probably the you know the purpose of epidemiology is to at some point kind of turn your findings into you know change either on the field, obviously in in our case, uh, or whatever the, the you know the the field is. Um, so how does that process kind of work? Like, when is it, okay, we know this is a problem now. What are we going to do?
0: Yeah, the uh, there's a researcher from 1992 who published a, a, a piece in sports medicine, uh, Van Mecklen. Uh, I believe he just actually retired this year. So he's been in the field, a world-renowned expert for decades. But uh, he always talks about this injury prevention framework that includes four steps. And the first step is is uh, just identifying the incidents, identifying the who what, where and when what's going on. That's really where surveillance and epidemiology I think come in just to identify the state of things. The second step he talks about is the need to look for etiological research. so research that really looks at that association between one thing and another. And I think that's the push we're trying to get with CTE and concussions and head impacts. We're trying to figure out what the etiology of CTE is and what's really causing that? And can we have strong evidence that really supports this? And I think we're still not there yet. The third step is uh, the development of prevention strategies based upon that work. So you're finding what are the causes that are potentially associated with these outcomes and how do we prevent them? And I think that's where we're jumping too far ahead. We're already talking about prevention and we still haven't really fully explored CTE just yet. The final step is going back to surveillance, our tracking of the who, what, where, and when to see how things have changed longitudinally, and we can see how the incidence has changed from now to when we first started that loop, and the loop continues and continues. I think when it comes to the stakeholders, the policymakers, um, it's once we evaluate how well or how effective those uh, interventions work, those prevention strategies, that's when we need to start having a conversation about what can we do to put these in place. And more importantly, what can we do to put these in place and make sure they're feasible and complied with by the individuals who are supposed to implement them.
1: Right. And that's obviously not a, a small task either. Um, so when you implement, eventually you implement some prevention strategies, how do you kind of account for unanticipated? like unanticipated adverse events. And I I just think of the NFL with the defenseless receiver rule and it might lead, you know, defenders to go low and then you get more knee injuries. I'm just using that as like an example.
0: Yeah. I think that's something you always have to keep an eye on. And it's just, um, you know, when I give talks, I always talk about, um, you know, you can't just pass out policy and just saunter off like everything's done you pat yourself on the back you have to keep monitoring that policy to make sure there aren't unintended consequences and i think that's where surveillance that's where research that just tracks things really helps to make sure how effective these things are really working. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is just research on implementation. And, um, you know, I did some research that found some really positive findings for USA football and Pop Warner practice contact restriction guidelines in youth football. But I went right around and started preaching about the need to, you know, if we're going to advertise USA football being uh, heads up football being something that's effective potentially, then you need to make sure that it's being implemented properly. And some of the research I found uh, with some of the work of my colleagues, such as Emily Crotius and Tom Dampier, found that, uh, first of all, with heads up football, it's not being uh, fully implemented well in many cases. And at the same time, heads up football, when you talk about the coach certification, uh, the rate of certification is actually poorer in some of the more Poorer, lower socioeconomic, racially diverse environments. So, the thing that gets me worried is that we may be ca- creating a health disparity gap or exacerbating it. So, we're providing interventions that work for those individuals in those communities that are best off, but we're forgetting about those who are in the smaller, harder to reach. Uh, poorer, lower uh, socioeconomic status communities that may need more help. We're not building interventions for those individuals in mind or figuring out ways to help ensure that those individuals get the interventions to work correctly.
1: That's incredible. And I feel like that's some, th- those are things that a lot of people don't think about, you know, like those, not yet, like that's like some deep unintended consequences of a, of a program. Um, so what were the, the reasons, you know, in addition to kind of the socioeconomic disparities of the USA uh, football heads up program, like what were some of the other issues with the implementation of it?
0: I think a lot of it was just, you know, the, the, the concern I have and it's I'm doing some work now with uh, some guidelines on uh, preseason heated climatizations in, in high school football. And I often worry that when we create policy We don't look at that the same as the individuals who are actually implementing it. So, A couple years ago, I did a study that looked at the National Athletic Trainers Association Inter-Association Task Force guidelines uh, that look to provide strategies or best practices to help minimize the risk of exertional heat illnesses and particularly exertional heat stroke that occurs during football practice preseasons in the fall and I looked at the guidelines. I said, here are 17 things that I think are the most important things. And then I surveyed athletic trainers and asked, what are your high schools doing? And at the end of the day, 2.5% of those athletic trainers, there's about 1100 across the U.S., said that their schools fully complied with the guidelines. And I remember thinking seven years ago, this is horrible. We need to do more. But now that I look back at that data, I wonder if it's just a bias on my part and an, an implicit bias of the fact that I'm a researcher and I'm looking at these things so much differently from the individuals who are actually reviewing these guidelines and saying how are we going to implement this and what's realistic and what's not realistic, and I think that's an issue that's occurring within a lot of uh, sports settings where there's just so many policies in place, so many policies that are out there for every sort of injury that I, I just can't imagine what it's like to be a physician or an athletic trainer now worried about having to make sure they're fully compliant with all these different policies. I mean, there's they're just laundry lists of things, and I just worry that. Sometimes we as researchers have our head in the clouds and we're not looking deep enough at what's actually occurring on the ground level.
1: Right. And I feel like there's I mean—policy is all over the place in all sorts of different industries and construction and manufacturing and stuff like that to prevent injuries in a lot of cases. So do you think that, like, how do they implement new policy? I feel like they might be... You know, maybe ahead of the game in in certain situations. Do you uh, agree with that? Um, like, and should we be looking to industries outside of sports to to learn from?
0: Yeah, I I've been a big advocate of not reinventing the wheel. Um, I think there's a lot of lesson learned lessons learned from other industries, from other segments of public health that can very much teach us what we can do to change the landscape of sports safety. Um, and I am gonna take a minute to plug my current study uh, that was currently funded by the CDC because I'm very excited about it because it takes stuff that I did when I was doing HIV prevention work, and is now applying it to a sports uh, safety setting. So, HIV has this uh, intervention called the po- popular opinion leader, and what it was during the advent of AIDS and HIV, when people were very concerned about it in the late '80s, early '90s, um, a research group came up with the idea of identifying those people who are the most well liked, respected, and trusted within one setting. And this setting for gay men was the local gay bar and the the community, they identified those people and they taught them or had them go through a training in which they became uh, personal endorsers of safer sex measures that they used that they could talk about in a very casual manner with their social networks. And the idea and the hope was that if these individuals were very open to talking about how they protect themselves, how they protect their sexual partners, Um, to their friends in a non-preaching manner, very much their own language, that it would would instill this culture change that would spread across the entire setting of the uh, gay male population within that city. And uh, it actually has been shown to be very effective. Um, Studies that were done back in the 1990s, even to international uh, settings with migrant workers, people of color, uh, low-income, multitude of settings, they found that this popular opinion uh, framework has been very effective in reducing uh, unsafe sexual practices and increasing HIV testing. So, I was trained to do this in Central Ohio when I was working in HIV. And as I was thinking about a CDC grant that was put out looking for ways to change culture within a youth sports setting, I thought, uh, I looked at my co-investigator, uh, John Register Mahalik and was just like, well, why don't we try to translate popular opinion leader into a youth sports setting? Why don't we get coaches and parents, we identify those individuals who are the most well-liked and well-respected and then apply that same framework of teaching them how to have these conversations about how they protect their children, how they protect their players. So not only are they providing that message to the kids on the team, but they're providing it to the network of other parents there who are watching the game, other coaches on the team. So the grant that we're doing right now is trying to develop this framework develop this intervention and then pilot test it across a couple of schools within our uh local community setting
1: that's really cool i, I love i'm really interested to see how that study is going to turn out i'll definitely uh be keeping tabs on I am, that one.
0: i'm uh you know in all honesty grants like this we start data collection next month and i'm um i hope i can swear i'm shitting my pants right now there's always a scary part <laughs> um you can censor that if you need to um the moment you first start data collection is always a scary moment. I jokingly always tell John, I'm like, I need my garbage can next to me in case I vomit and a paper bag to breathe into. But it's also very exciting. what
1: why are you scared? Just because like, it's, you're the unknown? Yeah, or? the unknown. What happens if it doesn't work?
0: What happens if, you know, if you're doing an online survey and you missed a typo or an error that just proves catastrophic? It's, it's research is all about leaps of Faith, man. It's, it's all about just giving it a chance and just... Taking that first step and seeing what happens, and the good part for many researchers is they have support. They have a research team that helps make sure that everything is done uh, to to minimize those risks. So, you know, when we're talking about you know what can be done to help ensure these unintended consequences happen, it's a lot of planning, a lot of formative research. And the one thing I'm so glad that the CDC grant allowed us is a year of just formative research, a year of just time to really think about these issues and talk about them to make sure that when we finally do start pilot testing, this intervention within the middle schools, um, that we have something good, have something that is thought about all the aspects of culture as related to, uh, the parents and the coaches and the athletes in that setting.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I I love that. Um, before we move on from the topic of injury surveillance, uh, you know, we, I wanted to ask you this before, but it just didn't quite fit in, in the timing. Uh, but in terms of, like, the NFL, you know, what is your opinion on how they implement, like, new rule changes? And do you think that they think of the unintended consequences? I'm just saying because my personal opinion when they do a lot of these um, new rule changes or whatever it might be, that it's kind of like they just slap a Band-Aid on it and, like, hope it works. Like, it's, I feel like, in my opinion, there's not a lot of like planning that goes into it.
0: Yeah, I I feel like given my time watching some of the um, the things as far as policy with with youth sports and college sports and high school sports, I think from our perspective as the fans or the people watching it, we forget there's a lot of... Other people involved in the decision-making process, and a lot of times um, there's a lot of planning that goes into it before it's released. Um, you know, when I think about the NCAA, you know, it's not just about what the NCAA wants; it's also making sure that all the divisions, all the conferences, are happy. And if you have one conference that's not happy, then it gets a lot harder to have something pass through. So I wonder if a lot of the, you know, the the, the stuff that is being done by the NFL. That is being perceived to be not enough or weak is just a, a, an issue with that about trying to find compromises to make everyone uh, there at the table happy. Um, you know, the counter argument to that is that, you know, it's the NFL. They should be able to just lay the smack down and say, this is the way it is and this is the way it's going to be, period. Um, I'm really not sure. I, I, I think there's a point where the NFL does have the potential to really develop the culture that exists not only at the professional sports level across all professional sports, but at the same time down to the college, the high school and the youth level. If the NFL passes something that is really perceived as revolutionary, then I think it becomes a lot easier for those lower levels of competition to start thinking about passing similar things to help make their uh, athletes safer.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I was just thinking as you were uh, talking that it there it kind of comes back to the media again. It's like yeah, like how we perceive the implementation of these rules and their effectiveness and uh, stuff like that. It's you know we don't really know what what went on behind closed doors. Um. So, what do you think is the most pressing issue when it comes to concussions today? We obviously talked about CTE, um, but I know I found. You through a, a video on Fox uh, about gender differences and concussions um, do you think that is a, a significant issue as well
0: yeah I think I think there are just so many issues at play but yeah the the ones that you always think about are CTE check slash sex differences and post concussion syndrome um, with sex differences There's just been so much evidence from multiple levels of competition, from college sports to high school sports. Uh, Recently, I worked with the group from George Mason University on their middle school Achieves Project Surveillance at the middle school level. We once again found the same thing. The rate of concussions in female sports is typically higher than that of their male counterparts. And we're not sure what the issue is. There's so many different theories out there all are credible. Some will argue that some theories are stronger than others, um, but it just for me means that we really need to focus on this a bit more. Um, at the same time, uh, the pressing issue, you know, fourth one I would add to that list would be the need to focus on sports other than football. I think there's been so much attention given to football and. You can make arguments as to why that is. Um, but I think we have to think about what's going on with concussion in other sports. These concussions can happen in non-contact sports and sports that try to limit the amount of contact that occurs. I mean, soccer is not supposed to be a contact sport. There are rules to really try to minimize that. But we see concussions occur at high rates in girls' soccer. We see it occurring in basketball. Um, We've seen cases of concussions occurring in swimming and diving, believe it or not. Um, We've seen concussions happen in cross-country. And all these things happen for, for different reasons. And I think there's a need to really develop more research that focuses on these other sports and i think one cool thing with the uh, ncaa is that they're working with the department of defense to do the uh, project care study which is uh, utilizing 30 schools across the ncaa as well as some of the uh, the uh, um, army navy uh, air force uh, uh, universities and tracking concussions as they occur within those athletes but also doing a lot of uh, follow-up and baseline testing to really get a sense of what's going on in each of these sports and what happens when an athlete has a concussion and how that varies from sport to sport from level to level
1: yes i definitely also see the need to look at, at other sports as well and i think that's part of the reason why football gets even more of a bad rap because people are so focused on football. And I think that might be largely due to um having more catastrophic injuries in football. Not that there's a, a ton in the big scheme of I guess playing. Um but I mean I experienced a catastrophic injury, brain injury from playing football. So obviously like it can happen. Yeah. But I was hoping that you could help put, you know, give us some more information on like the numbers of catastrophic injuries. Um, when it comes to sports and just kind of put them in perspective for us, like should we really be, you know, as afraid as some people might be of letting their kids play football? Yeah. I mean,
0: I mean, uh, you know, from my standpoint and um, you know, this is with the knowledge that I have, you know, when you talk about the entire spectrum of injuries, thankfully those catastrophic injuries are by far the smaller number of that pool of injuries that occur. But you know, it's easy. It's not easy to say when you're telling it to someone who has dealt with one of these injuries, because, um, you know, try telling that to a parent whose kid died of one of these injuries or who who had a life changing injury. You know, I think. We have to think about not only about the quantity of injuries that occur, so how common these injuries are, but also the, the with the lack of better term, the quality of the injuries, like how impactful these are. And these catastrophic injuries, although rare, do happen quite a bit. So we have to treat them and we have to think about them in the same way as we do the common injuries. We have to think about ways to prevent them from happening, even though they're that rare.
1: Yeah, and I mean... I was on the field when Eric LeGrand was paralyzed, too, because I was working for the team at the time. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it, like, kills you to, to see, like, as rare as it is, like, yeah, that's, like, that kid's life, you know? Like, so, it's, it, yeah, it's yeah, not a small percentage to, to those guys. I was thinking about LeGrand. it
0: also, you know, you're, you're mentioning football. Sorry, I'm kind of taking a step back. But, you know, um, I think that, you know, when we talk about football – There's a part of me that's recently been worrying about how we do surveillance or how we treat rates that may be minimizing the actual impact that football has when compared to other sports. Um, so let me try to explain this as best as I I talked about this on Monday during my uh, master's student defense. Um, but when you talk about athlete exposures, right, you have. Athlete exposures being this head count of how many people were participating in a game or how many people were participating in a practice, right? And when you talk about a football squad, you're talking at the NCAA level about 107, 108 guys. And then you compare it to wrestlers, where I think a team is maybe 30 individuals. But when you talk about the game itself, all 107 players are more or less encompassing 11 people on the field for that entire game, right? But then when you're talking about a wrestler, each match, each event, it's just that wrestler himself, or in some cases, at many schools herself. Um, But that, I think, creates a bias where you're accounting for more people in that denominator, and it may be underestimating the actual incidence of concussion because you're including so much more people. You're accounting for that larger squad size. Um, So I often worry that the way we've treated athlete exposures and rates um, that it's telling a story that it's not just football, it's wrestling. One of the papers I did in 2015, led by Scott Zuckerman, found that wrestling and ice hockey actually had larger concussion rates than football. But at the same time, I wonder if we had done something that was uh, proposed by two authors, Stovers and Stryer, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine about five years ago, where they said, you know, the game rate should just be 11. It doesn't matter if 80 people were playing. Your denominator for that game is eleven. Your athlete exposure is eleven. If you had computed the rates that way, I, I'm telling you, football would have been far higher of a concussion rate than all those other sports. And I think the discussion would be very much different if we had utilized that as a norm for for rates. So again, it's just the way you play with the data, the way you present the data. Um, I think right now, you know, I'm saying, you know, we should think about all sports, but there's the other part of me that's saying, you know, what if it is? What if football is really the big thing we have to tackle? And this is a public health issue that we talk about all the time. Um, I think the author's name is Rose, but, uh, this author, uh, was proposing this, this conflict where if we we have a health outcome, what do we do? Do we just go after those individuals who are highest at risk and only focus on them at the expense of others who are less at risk? Or do we go for something that approaches everyone equally overall, even though individuals who are more at risk don't get that extra attention?
1: Yeah, it seems like you guys are in a tough position in, in that just based off what you just said and then like how people paint the story, or write the story just based off of the numbers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My biggest advice to to athletic trainers and any stakeholder now is they need to be vocal. If they don't like the way we researchers are presenting the data, they need to tell us. They need to tell us, this doesn't help me, but this will, so we can start adapting.
1: Interesting. Well, it's good that you work with a lot of athletic trainers too, though. Yeah. I, um, I was, when I was at UNC, the, the trick
0: was they wanted to get an epidemiologist or a public health student working and immersing themselves with athletic training students, with athletic training uh, individuals, so that they could see the world in a different sense, and this actually. You know, this guinea pig project with me as a doc student actually was a result of one of their students, an athletic trainer who was doing doctoral work um, at the University of North Carolina, Jonna Register Mihalik, who was then um, put into the world of public health to sort of see athletic training from a different approach. So she was finishing her PhD right when I was starting, and they said, Well, it works so well with Jonna, you know, let's try it with Zach the other way around.
1: Cool. Um- Can you explain to us a little bit more about like what you guys do over at the center for the study of retired athletes? I mean, I think that's kind of like a one of a kind uh, program that you guys have and you know, I'm all about the transition to life after sports. I talk, that, talk a lot about that on the podcast. So I was curious, like, what other things you guys do there? Yeah.
0: Um, so I'll tell you a bit about the history of it. I mean, this, this center has been around for almost 20 years now. Um, and I started as a student there in 2010. And that was my first experience working with them. Um, they have a lot of data on former retired athletes. And honestly, we're so looking through that data, analyzing the data, trying to look at things uh, from a different perspective. But at the same time, uh, the center is funded through many different grants to be able to examine and provide clinical care for former retired NFL athletes as well to provide that clinical piece. To get them the resources or the information they need uh, for next steps of how to manage uh, any sort of ailments they have. So my role is is the research director, and um, it's been kind of interesting. I, I started at UNC to really focus on the CSRA, but um, I got a couple of grants at the youth level. So I kind of jokingly say I you know the, I use the umbrella statement of I study the. Uh, prevention of sports injury across the lifespan to be able to account for the youth athletes and the former retired athletes. But I will say that the thing that I'm most excited about now with the center's work is is working with a couple of the other faculty outside of the center for the study of retired athletes, uh, who want to look at components not just related to football players at the professional level, but also collegiate athletes. So how collegiate athletes deal with uh, their uh, completion of the role as an athlete and just uh, transition into, I guess you could call it the normal life, but also looking at how, um, athletes from other sports deal with transition from, uh, from their professional sports. And so one group we work with a lot is the Center for Research in Intercollegiate Athletes is another, uh, center that is housed in the Department of Exercise Sports Science, um, J.D. DeFries, who is the Clinical Director uh, at the Center for the Study of Retired Athletes, uh, works with me, uh, and Arianne Waite, who is a professor in the Department of Exercise Sports Science as well. And the three of us been, have been really focused on trying to think of how do we expand the, st- the, the center's reach? How do we think about other athletes? So We've done some survey work with former collegiate athletes. We're also starting some research looking at uh, former professional tennis players. Uh, we have a colleague who was a former professional uh, woman's tennis player, and we're going to start doing interviews with former tennis players, all of whom were at one point ranked within the top 100 to learn about how they dealt with transition from professional sports uh, into uh, non-professional
1: sports worlds. Is that with Neha Uberoi? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I interviewed her on my podcast. Like, not too long ago, oh, actually. So, and this sound is so she's familiar. She's so
0: awesome, yeah. Yeah, she's incredible.
1: <laughs> Small, Small world, right? really cool. I know, cool. that's crazy. Uh, so... How do you like keep track of all these studies like you got so much stuff going on there like how do you prioritize like what you're gonna work on each day oh, man I wish I could share you my excel sheet
0: <laughs> um, I have this excel sheet it's actually up right now and it just is some of my students and some of my friends think I'm crazy I think um, You know, I guess I have the perfect mindset. You know, my parents talk about when I was a kid, I always used to carry around this little letter box with magnets and letters and they always said I was just into math as a kid and and being organized. And maybe that's a blessing in disguise for me now because my whole life is on this Excel sheet, I guess you could say. It tells me everything I got to do, when I got to do it by, when I have to start working on it, when I need to check in with authors on paper, what manuscripts are under review. Um, And then I have this one column on the left that just orders like this is what I got to get done today or this is the order in which I got to do it. And it's continuously evolving um, as far as like when I got to get stuff done, when I should work on things, how I'm going to work on things. And that keeps me pretty organized. I jokingly always say I may have a bit of undiagnosed um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, but, you know, God, I hope that doesn't come off as offensive to anyone that does actually deal with OCD. But um, there's a bit of me that, that needs that obsession with staying organized to keep me on time with stuff, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like everyone needs that, and that just happens to be what works for you. So uh, that's that's cool. Yeah, everyone's
0: got a method to the mayhem. I know people have whiteboards with stuff, but you know, the problem with whiteboards is they stay in my office and they're not with me all the time. Whereas, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm the guy with the briefcase handcuffed to my arm, um, and in that briefcase right. is everything I need. That's I'm I'm sort of the same way with my laptop
1: it's always with you yeah yeah the best thing um, i do is um
0: you know my other half always complains about that you know i work too much and i'll never listen to him but i, I tell you what when when i get home and my dog jumps in my lap and just slips my laptop off the couch that's when i stop working
1: yeah it's yeah, over <laughs> once the dog's like you're done
0: pet me i'm like yes sir <laughs>
1: yeah i I remember seeing something at unc that there's a dog one of the athletic trainers uses like a therapy dog yeah that dog
0: is awesome yeah Yeah, it's a emotional support dog for the the baseball athletes but uh remington has become such a fixture within the athletic training department um there are times where you know i'll see uh remington and his uh trainer um and oh I don't know if Remington's a boy or a girl but I'll see Remington and um the athletic trainer who watches over and this is horrible like I know the dog's name but I'm having a brain fart on the athletic trainer's right name right now and I'm gonna get so <laughs> much crap if if she ever hears this but um yeah Remington is just an awesome fixture some of the doc students actually have pictures of uh, of Remington in, in their office.
1: That's really cool. Yeah, it's amazing to me how like on the cutting edge UNC is in terms of like just prioritizing the health and safety of their athletes and other athletes. It's it seems like a really awesome place. Yeah,
0: it's it's fun. And the the athletic trainer's name is Terry Joe Rosinski. Um, sorry, <laughs> I just remembered her name. Hey,
1: it's okay. Yeah, whatever. You just click Google search. You call me right-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, I, I'm sure you heard the clicking behind. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just kidding, man. Uh, all right. So, as we wrap up, what have been some of the most like impactful findings that you've had in your research to date? And what has kind of resulted from those findings that like implemented a, a new safety feature?
0: Yeah, I think um, for me, a lot of the work, it, it always comes down to... The work I did for my dissertation that really cemented everything that I'm doing now. Um, my dissertation work really was developed from the uh, Center for the Study of Retired Athletes. Kevin Guskowitz actually has uh, a plaque, uh version of the New York Times article that Alan Schwartz wrote, wrote. and in it. Um, there was discussion about limitations. And I told myself when I was in my first year, I was like, I'm going to find a way to try to deal with some of these limitations. And um, my dissertation was my attempt at that. And it was just such a great learning experience. And every step that I took to get that dissertation accomplished still helps me to this day. So I I really wouldn't say there's one particular study that I'm I'm most proud of um, or, or think that is the most impactful because I think all of them were stepping stones to help me become a better researcher. And one of my epidemiology uh, professors, Steve Cole, always said, you know, you know, if you're growing as a researcher, if you can look back at all your previous studies and say, you know, you're not going to say, well, that study was crap, but you're going to say, you know, there's, there's a, something I could have done better with that past study, something I wish I'd done that I know now. And I think that's the thing that I take uh, the most out of it. The other thing I will say is that the the other thing I've enjoyed about the research process is gaining a respect for athletes. Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest, man. I mean, when I was in high school and when I was an undergrad at the University of Washington, I just had this bias against athletes. Um, I just thought they were dumb jocks. I thought they were not smart. Um, but now working with athletic trainers, working with the NCAA, my time still here at UNC, I just have the utmost respect for athletes. I mean, they work so hard. They have so much determination. Um I kind of almost jokingly say at times, you know, this research and in sports injury is sort of this purgatory punishment for me for how horrible of a person I was with some of the things I said about athletes. And I feel that this path that I was given in life really helped me deal with that and pay it forward back. I mean, I, I, I will say that the, the athletes that I work with in the classroom and in research settings are just so smart. And I'm, I just have the complete most faith in them succeeding as individuals in the future.
1: That's an awesome tribute. Uh, and it's cool. Yeah, there, there's no accidents in life yeah. and it's cool to see kind of how your path turned out and how you can look back on on all that most stuff. Most definitely. Um Yeah, so what do you think the future of injury surveillance looks like in sports? Um, and what are you what what are you most excited for on the horizon?
0: You know, I'm I'm the most excited for further exploring the youth level. I think that is an untapped Area that is slowly growing as we figure out what can we do to get good data from sources other than athletic trainers. Um, there's a lot of pilot testing on these phone apps to have parents do it. I've always wondered, you know, why don't we get the, that one parent, that popular opinion leader, I guess you could say, to be the one who helps us collect data. You know, pay them a good stipend. Um, to keep them financially motivated as well as altruistically. Um, but I am very curious to see how injury surveillance is going to shape when we start looking at the youth level and as stated before, when we start listening or continuing listening uh, to what the athletic trainers, the parents, the administrators, the coaches, what they feel is going to help them. At the same time, though, I, I should note that you know there's a lot of what we can do or what surveillance can do. But uh, we also have to take a step back and say, you know, what surveillance can't do. Um, sometimes we get recommendations for surveillance that becomes something other than surveillance. It becomes one of those etiological studies that's looking at cause and effect or association. I think sometimes surveillance is meant to be the tip of the iceberg, the beginning of a journey uh, to explore what causes an injury and sometimes we have to make sure we're not asking for too much because if we start asking for too much from the data collectors then we lose them all together
1: okay yeah it's almost like yeah you're you're, it's like the the light bulb goes off and it's like yeah we have a problem here maybe we should look into this further um really cool so zach thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your knowledge i feel like i got a mini phd (laughs) just by um listening to you the whole time but you put it in a, a really in layman's terms that i was actually able to understand what you're what you were talking about and i know my guests will feel the same way and i really appreciate what you guys do over at the university of uh, north carolina at chapel hill and i commend you guys for for your work over there and something that i i share a passion with so thank you and uh, where can people connect with you online um yeah they can um
0: you know, I, I just for whatever reason I've never been a fan of of Twitter. Um, I'm just I'm becoming an old fart. Um, I just don't get it. <laughs> um, I would say the best thing to do is shoot me an email, uh, zker at email.unc.edu. Um, I know giving email addresses uh, verbally is really hard to do. Just I, I, this is going to sound pompous. Google me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I feel like most people can Google themselves, so I don't think that's pompous. Yeah, You're good. There's, there's two other
0: Zachary Kerr's out there. I know one of them used to play for the Indianapolis Colts, and then another is a transgender activist, I think who's still a high school student. Um, but um, just look for the one who's the professor at exercise sports science at UNC. Hopefully you'll be able to tell the three of us apart.
1: Well, I'll link all that up in the show notes, and if people have a hard time re- reaching out to you, they can reach out to me. Uh, through my website and we'll, I'll make the connection happen. Alright, awesome. But, uh, th- thanks All a lot. Right, thank you for
0: having me. This has been great.